All right, episode 136 with Brad Dieter is about to start. This one is filled with a lot of great information. And as you can tell, Brad is very, very intelligent. And at the young age of only 30 years old, has a PhD, and you can just tell how much passion comes out of every word he says when it comes to nutritional science. This episode is just amazing, great info, and he is the first person that led me in the right direction to figure out what the hell is going on with me when it comes to my coffee addiction. So let's get right into the episode. Here's Brad. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is the man, Brad Dieter. Say hello. Hey, everybody. It's uh, nice to be here. We've got two people on the West Coast time zone, so this is probably the first one I've done like that in a while. Nice. Uh, so I always like to break the ice for the audience and ask my guests, what do you got planned for the weekend? Oh, uh, I have a, a big weekend here. We just picked up a seven and a half week old puppy so i'm literally sitting in the laundry room with the dog for the next two days awesome. <laughs> take my laptop in there and get some work done while he's sleeping and yeah that's that's on my agenda that's awesome what kind of dog he's a golden doodle so it's a golden retriever mixed with a poodle wow <laughs> that sounds cute yeah, he's, though he's pretty cute <laughs> there you go uh what made you want to get a dog in the first place um, we had dogs growing up and my life's been so busy and crazy since I was about, you know, 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of decided it was time for me to slow down a little bit. So I forced myself <laughs> to get a dog so I would have to work a little bit less and hang out a little bit more. There you go. Um, and also for the audience who don't know who you are, can you do a quick little intro of like who you are, what you do, and how did you first get into this industry? Yeah. Uh, so let's see. I'm I'm Brad. Obviously, <laughs> the right now I'm a research scientist at a non for you know a nonprofit uh, medical institution. We do a lot of basic science, translational science. We do everything from like very basic molecular, cellular biology, all the way up through uh, designing clinical trials to big data analytics. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm doing. I did my postdoc fellowship at that institute, and now I'm a faculty member there. And my work there is primarily on the intersection of metabolism, diabetes, and, and organ complications. Uh, I am also a co-owner and uh, you know help run Eat to Perform. So it's one of the largest health coaching organizations in the world. Um, we're pretty, we're slowly transitioning into a, a coaching slash health technology company. We've built some pretty cool software um, that's really starting to mature and take shape. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I do a lot of, you know, working with clients. I have some like, you know, private consulting that I do. And I also kind of help build uh, and incubate biotech startups. So I'm uh, kind of have my feet in a lot of different worlds. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Wow. That's a lot. Okay. <laughs> um, to kind of unravel this, I'm kind of curious cause like you were really, really well educated. So like bring me back to high school. Were you always into science? Like where did this passion come from to get into this nutrition and everything you're doing? Yeah. So when I was a kid, I was kind of, you know, I've always been somebody who's kind of pulled from very opposite ends. I was a, a big athlete growing up. I 
basketball was kind of my whole life. And then the other side of my whole life was, you know, science and being really interested in medicine and science and all that kind of stuff. So I was, you know, I very much was highly focused on athletics. Um, and, you know, school came fairly easily, you know, just as a kid growing up. And so I spent a lot of my time, you know, just reading, doing a lot of, you know, learning about science and math and, and medicine and all that kind of cool stuff as a kid. And, uh, you know, academics wasn't really something I really cared a lot about when I was, you know, in junior high and high school. I just kind of was like, you know, I'm more interested in learning than actually like caring about being organized and doing the whole school thing. So I just kind of did a lot of like self-education as a kid. And then in college, you know, kind of my first couple of years, since I didn't really have a lot of those like study skills, you know, and I was kind of mm -hmm. just still winging it. Um, Kind of was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a physician, you know, be a surgeon. Um, that was kind of what I thought growing up and then realized that just wasn't kind of my personality and what I wanted to do and uh, ended up, you know, deciding after I finished my undergrad that research was more my focus. So I took a year, year and a half and worked um, kind of in the biomed, biotech industry and also did like interning on the side of I was a intern strength conditioning coach at Gonzaga University here in Spokane. Um, so kind of was doing both of those things. And then went back to graduate school and my master's was, it was in basically exercise science, but my focus there was more in musculoskeletal mechanics. Um, and I worked a lot in, you know, like mus, uh, you know, basically electromyography did a lot of work in, you know, basically motor unit recruitment, that kind of stuff. And then got really, realized that wasn't really what I wanted to do and liked, you know, more of the biochemistry nutrition side. So I ended up doing my PhD work in uh, also exercise physiology, but we looked at basically uh, how exercise impacts, how exercise and diet impact the transcriptional regulation of cardiac remodeling in, in diabetes versus uh, nutrition and exercise. So that was, those are kind of my interests. I just kind of kept my interests open and followed the different doors and, uh, basically just spent, you know, about a decade as a professional student and then did a postdoc fellowship. And now I'm kind of where I'm at doing what I'm doing. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I'm also kind of curious too, like what's kind of exciting you right now, what you're doing with your career? Like, is there a certain part of like the nutrition science that you really like, or is there something else that you're like leaning towards right now that you're like totally geeking out about? <laughs> Yeah, you know, what's been really interesting is in the actual, like, science world is the technologies are developing so fast and we're generating so much data um, that we're learning a lot about, like, really the underlying architecture of diseases is a, at a pretty quick rate. Um, and we're starting to understand diseases more. But one of the things I'm starting to learn is the treatment strategies are still going to be decades away. Um, and even then, this promise of pre precision medicine, I think, is still going to come down to disease management um, and symptom management because they're so multifactorial that, you know, a lot of what's going to have the pay dirt is the, the prevention and, and the lifestyle stuff. And while we need both, uh, you know, I think that a lot of what I've been able to do is pushing me a lot towards how can we build, take the data that we know and the science that we know and start to build systems and change, you know, environments and behaviors and things like that to, to work more on the lifestyle modification and prevention, 
you know, and put a lot more of my eggs in that basket and couple that, you know, with the, the more targeted therapeutics down the road. So that's kind of where at least my head's at and how I'm tackling a lot of the current projects that I'm tackling. Okay. And you were talking about a little bit like getting into software too. Like, can you chat about that a bit? Yeah. So I talked a little bit about this. Um, we, we talked quite a bit on the, the fitness devils podcast Mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of it is, we have all these big data things, right? If you think about like my fitness pal, Fitbit, um, you know, chronometer, all these other things that are coming out that are like collecting all this data on people. What it's really telling us is that we need something to be able to do with this, right? Is the, the, my fitness pal model is you're eating this, you know, just eat 500 less calories and you're going to lose, you know, a pound a week. We know, like, if you've been a practitioner for a while, you know that just doesn't work in the real world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Fitbit's the same kind of way. You know, it calculates your, it, you know, aggregates all your data and says, hey, take 5,000 extra steps a day, you're going to lose weight. We know that doesn't work, right? And so all these different pieces are trying to figure out what's their kind of shtick that they can make and then, you know, build value in Silicon Valley and say we've got all this data and we have solved the problem. In my view... On this issue is we have all this data, but we know that it, at least currently, it takes humans to understand humans. So how can we use the data to basically build Iron Man suits for coaches, that they can have all this stuff at their fingertips and then make the best decisions for all their clients in a really easy, slick way that you know the clients aren't feeling like they're being inundated with data, the coaches aren't feeling like that, but it's just like a, a dashboard where people can actually see this kind of stuff and then make the right adjustments for people to actually get results that are more, you know, lifestyle based and kind of have this human connection to it. Oh, you're right. And like, I remember, I think it was Patrick Ward who wrote in like a blog or article when the Fitbit came out and it was like the most popular thing. And he's very like numbers based and he's like, you know, the Fitbit is great. It gives you all this information and data, but it doesn't tell you what to do with it. And he's like, the moment you get like an activity tracker that collects all your data and then tells you what you should do with it is going to be like the next level. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a lot of that is what's really interesting is as you start to pull all this stuff together is the things that you think are what people's problems are don't always end up being what their actual problems are, right? A lot of clients will come to you saying, you know, they've got a training issue or they've got a food issue. But then when you look at all this stuff, it's like, no, you really have a, a sleep stress consistency issue, right? It's, and you can start to piece together all these pieces and start to kind of personalize and customize all these different scenarios for people. The other thing I wanted to bring up too, um, I think you might be the only person that could actually give me an answer because I've been asking this question to a bunch of different people who are in like nutritional science. <clears throat> so my audience knows that I'm a huge like coffee fanatic mm-hmm. and I'm a type of person where I could like drink eight cups in a day and feel totally normal. I can mm-hmm. drink like espresso at 10 p.m. and go to sleep and I have no jitters, no nothing. And I've even like experimented where I went off caffeine for two months, felt exactly the same. I've taken every pre-workout supplement under the sun. I have no energy from it. I've taken pure ephedrine, still nothing. So I wonder if you're able to like shed some light on what the hell's going on with me. 
Man, off the top of my head, I mean, the differential diagnosis I would give you is kind of tells us something that, you know, your your adenosine receptors probably are not functioning like a normal person. That might be like some sort of, you know, genetic thing. It might be some sort of, you know, other thing. But, you know, I don't have a good answer right off the top of my head. That would be something that you should get a... Have you ever done one of those like 23andMe tests or anything that's done like a DNA panel? No, but I, I you should, should. Yeah, you should see if you can find one that will do like a, in, you know, like an adenosine receptor or you know any of the other caffeine metabolism things. Because I know that there are like single nucleotide polymorphisms that determine how people respond to caffeine. Um, so that would be interesting to see if that's something that's going on. But off the top of my head, I would not have like a here's your diagnosis answer. No, but that was really good. Like, you're probably the only person that, like, gave me concrete, like, steps to, like, try this and see what happens. So that's, like, amazing. Thank you. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, I, it's always, like, bugged me. I'm, like, you know, all these people who drink coffee in the morning, they're, like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm super tired. And they get my first cup, and I'm, like, boom, wired. And I'm, like, I wish I had that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was yeah. Good I mean, maybe you just operate at the wired all the time level, so there's no, there's no higher <laughs> level to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up too is like you have a lot of stuff going on and some of the questions I want to get into from like Facebook that we got there's a kind of like an underlying theme of like how do you manage your time to do all these things that you have going on and how do you like prioritize things in your life um, yeah I get that question a lot you know a lot of it is it's kind of two very simple there are probably three very simple but not sexy answers. One is just be hyper-efficient. Like when you're working, work. Don't get distracted. Don't do anything else. You know, where it might take a lot of people, you know, six hours to write a thousand word, you know, article or something. It takes me, you know, 45 minutes because I can just stay focused. And I think a lot of that's, you know, just being in school for so long um, and being really focused on having a lot of stuff going on all the time, you just kind of learn to kind of get in work mode and not get distracted. That would be one. Uh, the other one is, you know, make a priority list and stick to that priority list and decide like what actually needs to have attention and what doesn't. So like a good example you know, a lot of people have this idea of like inbox zero where every day they go through and they clean up their Gmail account. And for me, it's like, that's 25 minutes. That's not super helpful. Right. So like, I just, I pull up my email, I scan through it. I answer all the stuff I need to answer. And then I just go about my day. Right. And then like after six months, when it's just got to the point where the numbers stressing me out so much, I just like go in and do a control alt delete everything in my inbox. Right. So instead of wasting 25 minutes a day, trying to pretend like I'm organized, I just focus on what actually needs to be done. So it's like prioritize all the big things and knock the hard stuff out of the way first. Um, and kind of just the rest comes. And then the last is, you know, you do have to work more than the normal person, right? So, like, I haven't worked a normal nine-to-five schedule for, you know, 10 years. It's, like, during grad school, it was really long days, you know, 16, 18, 20-hour days. The last few years, it's been, you know, 14, 15-hour days. Um, and so, you just kind of, you just stay really focused, and you just got to kind of put in a little more hours than the average person. Do you ever feel like you get burnt out at all? Oh, yeah. I think anybody who, who does that kind of stuff and tells you they don't get burnout from time to time is either lying or they're 
you know, a sociopath or something. I don't know. You know, it's like, but there's also, you know, the, the flip side is how I used to handle it is, you know, like you've probably gotten to the point where you've been really overwhelmed with something mm-hmm. and you, I always just like stop, take 10 minutes, kind of like let myself have a little bit of a freak out and then just put a plan in place to get through what I need to get through. And then it just kind of rolls with it. Um, and then you just kind of learn to, you know, not let stuff get to you. So if projects get, you know, delayed or things get dropped, you just, you don't let the stress accumulate. No, that makes sense. And like, I don't know, for me, when I do like a 16 hour day, it's because I'm working on stuff that excites me. Exactly. So it's like, that's the motivation to keep going. But I think if someone was working like a warehouse job where you're working 16 hours of manual labor, you'll probably burn up a lot quicker. Yeah, you know, I would agree with that, too. I think a lot of people, you know, when you're working on, like, projects that are kind of bigger picture things, uh, you know, it's easy to get lost in your work, too. But if you're just, like, you know, punching a clock, that's just totally different work style. It's a totally different approach. I mean, my wife, she's a, a nurse, and she, you know, works shifts. Like, she was in the ER for three and a half years, and she was in the ICU for three and a half years. And for her, like, a 40-hour work week is just brutal because it's just so much different type of work than, you know, having a project where you can, you know, get on your computer and do some work and then go to another project and do some other work. So it's just, it they're so different. Yeah, definitely. And then the other thing, too, I'm kind of curious about and probably audience is, um, like, what does your typical day look like? Like, what time do you wake up? What do you do first thing? And then, like, how do you end your day? Yeah, so normally uh, I usually get up between 4 and 4.45. just kind of depends on the day. Um, I either go straight to the gym and get a workout in. Um, so, like, if my wife's working at night, you know, I will uh, I'll work from home in the morning. But if she's you know, has the night off, I'll get up and just go to the gym first thing. And then, you know, so the days that I go to the gym, I get home about 6 and I work uh, till about 8. And then I, you know, take a quick shower drive into the lab, uh, just work until about dinner time and then come home. Uh, and then, you know, after dinner, sit on the couch, get a couple more hours of work done while we're watching a movie or doing something and, um, just go to bed and rinse and repeat. So it's nothing crazy. You know, it's just get up pretty early, kind of stay focused and working the whole time. And, um, you know, at night when you're with your family, it's like people are watching a movie. It's, you've got plenty of time to just kind of sit and, do a little bit more stuff and, and keep it going. You know, one of the things that's interesting is, and I'd be interested to hear your take on it is, you know, a lot of like when you're at work, you can either like be working or you can kind of like pretend like you're working. Right. And for me, it's, it almost takes more energy to pretend like I'm working than it is to just sit down and do something productive. So, I mean, it's just kind of a normal, normal life. No, that's true. Like, I think a lot of people kind of just want to go with the flow and I think it takes more mental energy to like, yeah, I look busy than like actually being into it a hundred percent. Cause like, I know I've done tra- like a training day where I've trained clients from like morning to night. And after a while, when you just tra- want to coast it, it's actually more mentally draining than like, let's engage in a conversation as I'm coaching this person. And that hour will fly by a lot quicker. Yeah, that's what I found too. And I think I found that pretty early in my career, you know, was 
like we have an hour and you're in your office and like you're between classes. I could either like sit on Facebook for an hour or I could just like pull up the paper that's due in three weeks and, you know, spend an hour writing the introduction. And then, you know, this weekend when it comes to writing the next section, it's like, oh, I've already, I'm an hour ahead. Like I can just keep cruising. And so you just start to realize being engaged and doing something meaningful is usually a lot less stressful than just being in the void of doing nothing. Definitely. Um, the next thing I want to get into is sleep because that was one of the questions from Facebook from Kimberly Mills. Um, ask him if he actually sleeps at night and, <laughs> and then maybe we could talk about like what happens hormonally when you start depriving your body with sleep. Yeah. You know, I would say like I probably get six and a half seven hours of sleep at night, you know, from 10 to six or 10 to, or I mean, 10 to four or 10 to five, you know, something like that. Uh, so I, you know, it's like, I probably should sleep a little bit more. Um, that's probably, you know, one of the shortcomings of my life and what I've done to this point. And something that, you know, I think we all go through periods where there's just stuff you got to work on. Um, I mean, one of the things that we've learned in the last 20 years of scientific research is, not getting enough sleep is just bad for everything. We actually had locally uh, basically a symposium, um, a research symposium at the at Washington State University, and they have a big sleep center there. And we had two posters there, but I think the, all of the other posters there were all from the sleep lab. And basically it was like, think about any outcome you could measure, and it was basically studies just showing how bad sleep was for, you know, like hunger hormones, how bad it was for stress hormones. They did one test where they had, took cops and they tracked how often in their car they were within the traffic lines and how often they weren't. <laughs> and they had sleep deprived cops and non-sleep deprived cops. And they just looked at like basically time out of lane and your driving's worse, your attention's worse. It's, you know, sleep is a very evolutionarily expensive mechanism, right? If you think about when you're asleep, your likelihood of dying is a lot higher, right? From environmental things, you know, like animals or whatever you could have died from as we were being, you know, kind of forged as humans. And so anything that's like that, that's conserved is probably something that's super important and you shouldn't neglect. So basically every study that's been published basically tells you that if you're not sleeping enough and you're not recovering enough, all your health parameters are just going to start to plummet. And that's one thing that we see a lot. You know, when we look at the data we have on all of our clients is the people who struggle the most tend to be the people who sleep the least. Yeah. I, I, would, I would agree. Cause like I have a couple clients in particular I'm thinking about and like one in particular, like she's been probably training with me for like two or three years now and she has the worst sleeping habits ever like a good night would be like five hours and she eats great exercises but cannot lose the weight and i'm like god if you just slept a little bit longer consistently yep yeah i've had clients like that and uh sometimes i'll just like pull them out of training for two weeks and just say instead of going to the gym in the morning you're sleeping for two extra hours like that's your programming and that's just what you have to do. And usually that starts to open their eyes quite a bit. No, definitely. And I think this would be kind of great for this next question we got from Facebook from Tobias talking about brain fog. And then I asked him to uh, get a little bit more in depth about brain fog. And he said, 
Uh, he was previously lean, gained some weight, started yo-yo dieting, and then I've gained and I developed pretty bad brain fog over time. And I was trying to figure out how to get rid of it. Uh, you know, I am not a neuroscientist by training, so my <laughs> my understanding of what exactly is going on with brain fog is probably not as strong as he would like for a good answer. Um, you know. Once you kind of nail down the basics of like, okay, are you sleeping okay? Are you getting adequate amount of, you know, carbohydrates, fat, protein? Is it a certain time during the day? Are you abusing caffeine? Um, are you, you know, do you suffer from depression? Or do you have anything else clinical going on? That's like the hierarchy of things you think about when you kind of have stuff like that. Um, because it could be any of those things, right? You know, especially if you've kind of had a history of yo-yo dieting, uh, you know, of big calorie excursions up, big calorie excursions down is, you know, trying to think about, are you in a calorie deficit? Are you kind of having big meals and then no meals? Like starting to try to think about those things and just kind of go through the differential diagnosis of, okay, could it be this? Test it. Could it be this? Test it. Could it be this? Test it. Do you, do you think there's anything like nutritionally you can do? Because I've, I've had a couple people that I know that they kind of explained that kind of fog almost in front of their head and they ended mm -hmm. up going to a naturopath getting a um, blood allergy test and then they switched their diet up a little bit and that actually got the brain fog to go away i mean i can't rule that out mm -hmm. um just because that that could be possible you know i think that's one of those things where you know brain fog is such a a broad symptom you know is it like are you tired are you like feeling like you can't think is it you know you have headaches that cause you to not be able to concentrate is it like add like symptoms um so it kind of is like what is the actual symptom um could it be some sort of food intolerance or food allergy it, it could be um i just you know i don't know enough to say yes or no no i know what you mean because like i've had a couple like people on my show where they have a lot of like open-ended questions and it's yeah. kind of like Stuart McGill where he's like, well, it depends. And then you start like, it's hard to have like a blanket statement for everything, but maybe for a good question would be like, what's the most common question you get from people online and at conferences? And then what's the question that you wish you started getting? Oh, man. Um, I get, it's hard to pin down one. You know, I get so many questions from so many different people about so many different things. I guess the one question I would like people to ask me more is, let's see, how do I word this? Is it, how do I approach my problems for more long-term success? I think most of the questions I get from people are very much like, how do I fix this current acute problem? Um, and they're focused on like the next hurdle in their way. And a lot of times when people ask those questions, that's kind of all they're focused on. And the answer they're looking for is usually only solving that problem and not kind of thinking about the whole picture. So I, I wish a lot of the questions that people would ask me, you know, would be like, Hey, how do I do all this in a more long, long-term perspective? How do I start to put together things that, you know, 10 years from now I've kind of solved all the problems instead of how do I how do I get some extreme intervention to solve my current problems, right? And I think that's, I'd say that's kind of the category of thinking 
that I would like to shift people from is, you know, instead of how do I solve, like, how do I get to X percent body fat by, you know, July 4th for my vacation? Or, you know, I've got this current high, you know, TSH level. How do I bring that down by, you know, my next blood checkup? Or, you know, all those sorts of questions. More would it be like, hey, this is the type of physique I want. Or, you know, I'm having some overall health issues with my hormones. What are the pieces I need to put in place that I can just keep making incremental steps forward over the next 20 years instead of trying to just solve this acute problem today. No, I completely agree with you because, like, when I train clients, they're always looking for the quickest way to lose weight, even if they've been with me for a while and they understand everything that I spill out. But back of their head, they're like, okay, I'm going to find a diet, and in eight weeks, all my problems are going to go away. And I'm like, you got to, like, shift your mindset that, you know, if you want to lose weight and keep it off, it's going to be like, you want to think almost like a year from now to three years from now, what can I do consistently to get to that goal? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, and I don't even think it's so much of a fault of our clients, right? Is one, I think that's human nature, right? It's really hard for us to understand 10 to 20 years from now, right? I'm, yeah. I just turned 30. And if you were to ask me, you know, about 50, I'd be like, God, I just want to figure out how I can get through the next month. Right. So it's, it's just very, it's very natural. Uh, and I think the other thing is, you know, so much of the history of our industry is, has pushed people to think like this. Right. And so I think we have a lot of, you know, natural programming to undo and a lot of industry driven programming to undo, to start to change that conversation. Um, so I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, how can you, help people solve some of these acute problems in a way that starts to align them with the long-term problem. And I also think like the way our world is shaping up, like everything has to be so fast. And I was thinking the other day, like I remember when I was growing up, I would always hear the term, like what's your five and 10 year plan. And now this new generation of like millennials and snowflakes, like I don't think they've ever heard that term. Like in five years, what do you want to accomplish? It's like, in three months, I want to make more money and travel the world. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was I was reading something the other day, or I know I was at a conference two weeks ago, and it was with at the National Institute of Health at the NIDDK for their Precision Medicine Project, and the the director got up and he like you know it was his big speech that he was supposed to give, and he had like two slides for his whole presentation, and one of them was a quote by Bill Gates that said, you know, most people overestimate what they can do in two years and drastically underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And I think that's, you know, that kind of gets at the crux of the issue, right? Is, Mm -hmm. you know, you can probably accomplish some things in eight weeks, but you can accomplish a lot more in 10 years that's sustainable if you start to think about it that way. Um, But it just takes a much different mode of thinking and mode of operating. Oh, definitely. Um, so the next thing I want to get into is intermittent fasting because Rita, I believe either from E-Train Progress or the other group, um, asked like for the people who practice intermittent fasting, is it catabolic to lift fasted? Should we have a protein shake before? And then in brackets she said that I get nauseous if I eat before lifting. Yeah, so there's, there's kind of a few pieces to that question. Um, I'll take the intermittent fasting part first. Mm -hmm. So when we think about, you know, what creates a catabolic environment overall? um, So whenever people ask me these questions, I like to think about it in terms of like 
fundamental principles and then try to slap the labels on where they apply is, you know, the catabolic process happens both over a long window and an immediate short window. Um, and so the long window is, you know, what's your overall calorie balance over a span of a week, a month, you know, six months, a year. Um, so that would be the first thing is before you even think about what intermittent fasting does to your anabolic or catabolic equation is, are you in an overall, you know, calorie surplus or calorie deficit over those types of windows? Um, and once you figure out that piece, then you're kind of allowed to move into the nutrient timing piece. Um, from the perspective of, you know, actual intermittent fasting of, you know, specific windows of feeding and non-feeding, when you control for overall calories, you know, there doesn't appear to be a very robust effect of, you know, intermittent fasting on muscle growth um, or, you know, catabolic processes. Now, so that's kind of the, the big level answer, right, is overall, not really, um, from both of those kind of levels of thinking and, and perspectives. Now, where it can start to get into, you know, intermittent fasting may not be the best way to set up an anabolic environment is the things that we know really dictate overall muscle growth, um, you know, or potentiating muscle protein synthesis is how much volume you can do, like in your training session, that's kind of the number one piece. Um, and also, what's the intensity of that volume, right? Is there does appear to be some effect of, you know, how intense in terms of overall muscle contraction and, you know, um, proximity to muscle failure you have to growth. And so, if you're going into a training session, you know, completely fasted, are you really maximizing your body's capacity to do a large amount of work and a large amount of fairly, you know, fairly intense work? Um, so that's the other way I would think about it. You know, I would strip out all the, the jargony stuff about hormones and all that kind of stuff and start to think about the fundamental principles of what you're asking is, you know, are you in your intermittent fasting protocol kind of optimizing calories over, longer windows, um, and then over shorter windows. And then is your fasting before training impacting your ability to train at a high enough volume and at a high enough intensity to maximize, you know, your, your muscle growth. So that's kind of how I would think about that question. Um, if it was me and I was like, Hey, intermittent fasting works super well for my lifestyle, but I want to make sure I'm, you know, maximizing my gains and minimizing my losses. Here's how I would set that up. And that's kind of how I would personally, you know, take those ideas and think about that question. Okay, because because I've uh, done intermittent fasting for probably six years now, seven years, mm -hmm. and I've trained like with weights in a fasted state, and I haven't really noticed that much of a difference. Like, I've pulled a PR for my deadlift fasted, and. When I first heard about intermittent fasting, it was from John Berardi and read his whole blog of his, like, experience mm -hmm. with it. So when he said, like, you know, you drink your, I think it was, like, two liters of water in the morning with some branched-chain amino acids, that's what I was doing for a while. And then I think it was either Andy Morgan or Alan Aragon that showed that it would be a better option to just have a protein shake with water instead of the branched-chain amino acids. So that's the only thing I switched Mm -hmm. Still don't see any like difference, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, at that level, you start to get into a lot of the things that don't really matter in the outcome, right? Yeah. So it's you know, I tell a lot of people is you know, some people 
Like if they train within an hour of eating, they can train way harder than if they trade on an empty stomach. Some people, if they have anything in their stomach, it just is a disaster. So it's a lot of, you know, for you, if is training fast that allow you to maximize your work capacity, then do that, right? Because that's what's really going to matter at the end of the day. I, I just find like if I time, because depending on my schedule, but I time like my workouts an hour um, before I eat. And every time I do that, I just have like a bigger appetite and I have like, I just feel a lot better when I get my first meal in after a workout compared to having it like super early in the morning and then waiting to get my first meal in. But I don't know if that does anything, but I don't know. I, I just find it like if intermittent fasting works for your body and fits in your lifestyle, just go for it. And I, I just think like if you're really worrying about that if I'm fasted, I'm gonna like lose all this muscle mass. Probably not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to get into is like I, I like getting people's take on the ketogenic diet, and I'm kind of curious with like what your opinion about it is, and it's like just go for it. Don't hold anything back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I'll try to do it justice here. I've written pretty extensively about it um, on my website, but here's kind of the way the way I think about it is, you know, it's it's a tool amongst many. Um, it can work for weight loss for a lot of people. Uh, it's not anything magical, right? We've we've done enough research on this topic to know that. You know, being in a state of ketosis does not itself seem to, you know, accelerate or amplify or magnify or whatever, you know, buzzword you want to use, you know, fat loss. Um, outside of very specific medical applications like, you know, intractable pediatric epilepsy, um, there may be some other neurological disorders that it appears to be beneficial for. But there's no real therapeutic medical benefit outside of those clearly defined uh, you know, interventional targets, we'll, we'll say, um, based on the literature we know, right? So all these things we hear about, you know, cancer and Alzheimer's and, and all these, these things, it's very unfounded. Um, now, that doesn't mean there couldn't be some potential therapeutic benefit, but we know that it doesn't really do what it's being claimed to do based on the evidence we have so far, um, but I think there is reasons in some of those cases to do research and see potentially what could be happening. The other side is, you know, we know that ketogenic diets impact higher intensity um, work capacity in almost everybody. And there's there's kind of this discussion of, oh, well, it could be good for, you know, long, slow endurance. But when we think about you know, 98% of sports and 98% of athletes is none of them utilize that type of energy system to perform at a high level, right? I mean, even sports like race walking where they did a study, it's not providing, you know, it's, it's detrimental to performance. Um, now, submaximal, longer endurance, could there be some benefit? There very well could be. Um, but I don't know of any arena where you're going to be a highly sponsored you know, highly successful athlete, uh, unless there becomes like a professional slow walking, you know, <laughs> sport that becomes like very popular. So I think there's, there's some limitations in the sports performance world that have been very, very clearly identified. Uh, 
you know, the, the other question, you know, I would bring up is, you know, what are the long-term sustainabilities of it? And if you're somebody thinking about using this diet, is there some things to consider of, of what can happen on the other end, right? So let's say you use this diet, you lose 35, 40 pounds, and then you're like, okay, well, I'm done. Now I'm going to go off this. Well, what are the things that happen when you come off it, right? Almost immediately, you're going to see a, a pretty decent weight rebound um, just because you've gone from being pretty glycogen depleted and you're refilling glycogen stores, which means water retention in your muscle tissues, which means pretty big, you know, depending on how big you are, four, five to 10 pounds of just water, you know, basically refilling in your body um, over a week to two week window. And for a lot of people, then they go, okay, well, then I can never go back to weighing that much because I just hit the lowest weight I've ever been. So I'm going to have to stay on this forever. Um, so that's something that we actually see quite a bit, right? We have a lot of people who come to eat to perform who've kind of gone through the you know, ketogenic diet phase. They've been eating less than 50 grams of carbs for two years, and they see an initial weight uptick because they're just rehydrating the muscles. Um, there's a very a very good paper that sh- – well, I won't say a very good paper, but there's very good data to show exactly what happens um, in this rehydration status uh, in a ketogenic diet paper um, – I can give you the link to it and kind of sure. give you a short synopsis so people who read it can kind of understand that. But it basically shows that if you take somebody, put them on a ketogenic diet, give them a DEXA scan, and then refeed them and then give them another DEXA scan, they have a huge increase in lean mass because of this, you know, your muscles are pulling in more water as they pull in more glycogen from eating it. And it's, you know, it's a fairly substantial amount. It's about... I think if I remember right, it's about eight pounds um, in a week just because of wow. going from fully dehy- basically dehydrated muscles to fully hydrated muscles. Um, so that's something to think about. And the other one is you know changes in your microbiome, right? We know that long-term low-carbohydrate intakes can change your microbiome, and then reintroducing carbohydrates can be tricky, right? Because the digestive capacity of your body has changed quite a bit, and if you're not slowly reintroducing things or you haven't taken steps to kind of prepare your body for that, you can also kind of have some digestive, you know, issues going on. So those are all the things to think about is, you know, it's a tool. It's nothing really special um, outside of specific medical applications. You know, it's, it's not going to be, you know, a therapeutic intervention for most cases for, you know, pretty high level athletes also not going to, do a whole lot for you in terms of high-end performance. Um, and then there are some, you know, kind of rebound things to consider as you start to come off them. Nice. That was probably one of the best answers, and I'm happy you talked about the rebound thing because our next question from Mark, uh, he asks, any explanation as to why regaining weight after achieving an uh, extremely lean state does the body re-add fat in a different way than the way it came off and redistributes it later? You know, I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's a lot of research that tells us and can point to, you know, exactly how this happens. Um, but you know, one of the things we do see is when we know that hormones can change a little bit of where fat is deposited. Um, that that does seem to be something that's fairly, you know, clear in terms of, you know, what <clears throat> endocrinology has taught us. Um, and we do know that extreme lean phenotypes can change hormonal panels. Um, now, is it always a when 
whenever you you know cut down to show weight, it changes the distribution of your body fat. I don't think that happens in most cases. Um, I think a lot of people just kind of have a set pattern of, you know, either whether it's genetic or just your natural hormonal profile or whatever it is. I don't think we've really figured that out yet. But you know, typically what happens is the last place you lost it from is usually the first place where it comes back. That's typically what we see. Um, now, can that change for people? I would imagine it can change for people. Um, exactly why that happens, I don't think we know for sure. Um, I'm sure somebody out there might know that that has more experience with you know physique competitors than I do. Um, but I don't know if that's like a standard thing that happens amongst most you know kind of people who get to extreme levels of leanness. But I think it can happen okay um the other question too we got from someone was your recommendations on um nutrition books so maybe we can make this like a two-parter where like if someone was brand new to all the things you said (laughs) where should they start and if someone wanted to dig deeper into the science what books would you recommend so i would say i'm very much like a start with the the basic principles kind of person um and then kind of build up from there so i think your first basic thing should be like a human physiology test textbook like just figure out how the body responds um and figure out you know what all the systems in the body do and then once you kind of have that nailed down and you kind of know the basics then the nutrition pieces start to fit into context a lot better. I think a lot of people make the mistake of going and reading a diet book or reading a nutrition textbook, um, and all they see are like, you know, algorithms of like have this much grams per hour, have this much, this much, this much, and they don't really have a good intuitive understanding of like how does the endocrine system work, how does the digestive system work, how does you know your musculoskeletal system actually work. So I would say the first place to start is actually like a physiology 101 textbook, right? Because once you understand how the body actually works, then understanding its inputs and outputs um, starts to make a lot more sense. So that would be the first one. Um, Then just like general nutrition, um, I would say probably one of the better ones, especially because I think a lot of us, you know, are more interested in the sports nutrition piece is... The ISSN's book for their um, certified, you know, International Society of Sports Nutrition textbook they have is actually a pretty good primer because um, it kind of it's in the context of uh, you know sports nutrition, but they do a good job of breaking down the basics uh, of nutrition. And so I would say that would probably be the next one. And then the third one is the Advanced Human. Uh, nutrition and metabolism. Actually, I'm actually looking at my bookshelf right now because I've got it in here somewhere. Um, it's by Gropper. I know that. And it's like advanced nutrition. Let me see if I can find it. Okay. Let me pull up the title because I don't, I'm going to butcher it if I don't. <laughs> Sounds good. Advanced nutrition. Yeah, the title is Advanced Nutrition and Human Metabolism. Um, and that's that's probably the best book if you really just want to understand, like, every process related to nutrition from when food enters your mouth through everywhere else it goes. And those are kind of my, my three big go-to approaches to just understanding the principles. Because once you understand the principles of 
like how everything works at a fundamental level, then, you know, like understanding how diet X or diet Y or whatever is actually impacting the client, it starts to become pretty easy to understand why things are working the way they're working. Nice. Um, the next question, um, what would you, like, if you had to give yourself advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be and why? Oh, man. <laughs> um, I would say probably everything's going to be fine. Okay. You know, when I was, like, I would say my biggest issue uh, were... I was very concerned, like, I wasn't going to be okay. Like, I was just super critical of myself and, you know, wasn't sure I was going to be successful. And I think I spent a lot of time worrying about that um, than anything else. And so I think if I could go back and, you know, give myself a little more grace, I probably would do that. Okay. And now the next question I like giving uh, to my guests is... um... You know, a lot of people online or we meet that, you know, they, like, look up to us. They kind of look at us as these perfect human beings that we have, like, life figured out. But we're just like them. So I'm kind of curious, what are you currently struggling with? Um, man, I'm really currently struggling with, like, the balance of how do I work hard and then also enjoy the rest of my life, right? Because I think we all get to that point where, you know, you, you get married, you have a family, you've been spending so long working, and it's like, at what point can I give myself the, like, the ability to slow down a little bit? Okay. Now, like, the other thing, too, I was going to bring up is, um, you know, after, like, researching you, you and your wife look just so amazingly happy. Do you have any relationship advice for the people who have girlfriends or boyfriends or that are married to kind of keep that spark going and keeping it uh, long lasting? Uh, yeah, I'll take this with a huge grain of salt, right? Mm-hmm. I've known my wife for almost four years. We've been married for like nine months. Um, so this is coming from very limited experience. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of it is it's kind of a few key things. One is be happy with who you are, right? If you're good with yourself, it's a lot easier to let somebody else love you and, you know, be happy with somebody else. Um, another thing is just be very respectful and don't take yourself too seriously. Like anybody who knows us knows most of our lives together is a giant joke. Like we just like nothing ever gets taken too seriously. Um, and then the last would be, you know, having a lot of patience for somebody else's life, right? Because I think, like, she works nights. I probably see her four or five days a month. Um, my work schedule is crazy. But, like, there's no – I don't feel the need to, like, put her in a box of what she should be for who I am, right? So I think there's a lot of, like, respect of who somebody else is too. No, that was, that was really good. Um, the other question we got from Dylan, this is like now like getting into your life. <laughs> um, have you ever thought about rewinding your life and pursuing a completely different career? If yes, what one and why? Oh, you know, that's tough. I would say, 
if I had to rewind it and do it all over again, um, you know, some of the things I would think about doing differently. Oh gosh. I don't know if there is anything I would do, you know, substantially different. I'm really, I'm really happy with where I am. Um, you know, I'm still young enough that I can switch if I want to do anything. I can kind of do whatever I want. I'd say maybe, you know, the only thing that I would change um, is probably spend a little bit more time when I was young being a little bit less responsible, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. instead of just going straight through school, which was great, you know, maybe spending a little more time, you know, traveling or developing different relationships or friendships. But other than that, there's no like big, you know, I wouldn't have probably gone into a different field or anything like that. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so maybe second last question, cause we're coming up to an hour. Um, I keep forgetting to ask my guests this, but what would be your spirit animal and why? Um, this is going to be the most ridiculous answer. It would be a red-tailed hawk because when I was a kid, I read these books. Uh, it was the Animorph series, and my favorite character was a red-tailed hawk, and he got to just fly wherever he wanted all the time, and that would be awesome. Nice. There you go. Uh, so very last question. What projects do you have coming out? Where can people find you online? And do you have any like speaking engagements or anything else you want to plug? You can right now. Uh, let's see. I've got I've got about three or four big academic papers that are I'm trying to get published in the next couple months. Um, one of them is on some mechanisms of disease and diabetic kidney disease. I've got one that looks at uh, you know how blood pressure affects acute kidney injury and cardiovascular outcomes in a big clinical trial. We've got some biomarker work coming out. So I've got some academic papers. Um, Eat to Perform, we're launching our new app platform. So like you said, you know, everything's changing in this world so fast. We launched our mobile app last year, and then we realized a couple months later we needed to rebuild it because there was newer, better ways to do it. <laughs> so after a year-long quest, we're about to relaunch that. Um... We've got some other stuff in like the biotech space that are coming out this year, which should be really exciting. So we're hoping that that makes the big splash that we're hoping it will. I've got a conference in Chicago I'll be speaking at, the Flexible Fitness Summit. That is the end of August. Uh, then I'm going to Vienna the beginning of December where I'm given a weekend long, um, basically nutrition and health and disease, a whole full weekend, which is going to be a, a ton of fun. I'm super excited for that. Um, so those are the two big ones I have coming up. I think I have a few small local ones, but those are the big things. Awesome. And then where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me. Uh, all of our coaching's done at Eat to Perform. So go to, just go to eat2perform.com. Um, we give everybody a, two, a free two-week trial to just check us out. We have all my... My nutrition writing lives at Science Driven Nutrition, um, and then you can find me on Facebook. You can just look me up, and I'm pretty accessible. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Yeah. No, I really appreciate it. So this was a ton of fun, and you know, let me know if you guys need anything else or uh, what kind of help you need spreading the message. Okay, everyone. That's going to wrap up episode 136. Damn, we are almost at 200, and I just want to thank 
every single one of you listening to my show. And thank you for all the people who have been reaching out recently. It's weird, like the last week I've had, I think about 20 people reach out to me and I am sorry if I did not get back to you right away. It's just a lot of people, and on top of that, I'm trying to run a bunch of different businesses, spend time with the wife, and walk the dog, and feed her. So, I apologize. And anyone else that wants to reach out and say, hey, or I had a question about this episode, or I need help with nutrition, feel free to reach out. Add me on Facebook, Instagram, DM me. Do what you gotta do. I'm happy to help. And until next week, you guys, that's it for me.